we're here. Oh, well. It's us. <laughs> this is Spiel, the reading event for people who don't usually like reading events. I'm Joanna Baxter. And I'm Dana Mahana. And we are your Spielin' Good Hosts. The two of us met in the Writer's Studio program at Simon Fraser University. The lasting takeaway from our experience is the importance of having a community of writers who understand the challenges and can celebrate in the victories of writing, both big and small. Joanna and I really wanted to extend that support to other emerging writers. Spiel is our way of cultivating that writing community in our own style. Your style? In our own style. (laughs) (laughs) We came up with Spiel, a live recording event where writers get up on stage and share their original work. Very scary, right? Our platform is wide and inclusive. We welcome all genres, poetry, prose, fiction, nonfiction, specfic, and sci-fi. The only strict rule is our five-minute format, after which the shepherd's hook will drag you off the stage. It's happened. It's ugly. Mm -hmm. Whatever the style of your writing, Spiel's goal is to empower and support. We hope you enjoy this episode's selection of readers. Yeah, we do. Avalon Bourne is a graduate of SFU's Writer's Studio program. She has been published in Emerge 2018. She also holds a BA in English Literature from UBC, which sparked her love of Gothic literature. Avalon's protagonists are not representatives of her, but they're not not representatives of her. Uh, This story is called The Version of Her. Metallic at first. This is how she would describe it if someone were to ask. Not that anyone ever does. Laughs at her, yes. But no one ever poses a question that requires an answer. Over the years, she has come to accept her designated role, the girl who can't watch scary movies, who can't be left alone at night, who jumps at shadows. Even her husband has long lost patience with all those qualities he once found so sweet. He refuses to understand that for her, the shadows jump back. A morning like any other when it started, but that's not true because of the taste in her mouth like burnt pennies, everything too bright. She washed her face for going showering, not wanting to ruin the hard to achieve texture of her hair. Her husband stood in the doorway. Every moment you spend staring into the mirror is another moment of traffic building up. Is it too bright in here, she asked him. Close the window if you don't want the sun to come in. They went to lunch, ran errands. She kept looking over her shoulder, seeing shadows only she could see. How can there be shadows when there's no sun, she thought. Maybe you should get your eyes checked, her husband said, impatient to be done with this latest episode. Arriving home exhausted, she entered the bathroom and saw the open cabinet. Maybe she forgot to close it. A reasonable explanation, but reasonable explanations are flimsy indeed in the face of growing fear. She closed the cabinet to show the worst version of her staring out, mirroring her look of shock. Her hairbrush clattered in the bathroom sink, her eyes meeting their counterpart, the expression in the mirror not of horror, but of smug satisfaction. 
Every feature the same, dark hair falling down her back, eyes pale blue and a pale face, even the hint of a scar at the corner of her eye, a relic of her one and only time skiing. She opened her mouth, not to scream exactly, but to acknowledge the creeping terror inching along her spine. Her version opened its mouth too, but then clapped its lips shut and shook its head. She had an urge to do the same, and her not a scream died in her throat. Her husband's voice filtered in from the other side of the bathroom door, a world away. What are you doing in there? It's been ages. Her eyes never left the thing in the mirror as it smiled, its teeth gleaming. Could you open the door? I never understand why you lock it. Her other reached out its hand. The cold of the metal lock touched her fingers before she realized what she was doing. Sorry, she whispered, not sure yet for what. Her husband stared into the mirror, the other placid. He said nothing, time trickled along, the three of them frozen. The lighting in here seems strange, or have you done something with? He trailed off, staring intently. A burst of hope, will she not be alone in this? It's your hair and your eyes, he said finally. They're darker and brighter. He turned to her, his intent expression changing to confusion, a flicker of disappointment. He looked back and forth for a moment before muttering to himself, strange lighting. She was sure the corner of its mouth turned up slightly. Her husband stood next to her as she numbly prepared for bed, the other in the mirror a beat too slow with its movements. Inside her head, a constant scream. How can he not realize what is happening? What is happening? It smirked at her as her husband continued to stare into the mirror. He only followed her out once she'd shut off the light. She now lives in a state of terror, the rapid beating of her heart a constant reminder of what lurks in every shiny surface. Every time she approaches a mirror, her husband materializes at her side, silent and staring. They don't speak of this new routine, and its smile is wider and redder every time she meets its eyes. She assumes the semblance of a normal life, going to work, avoiding windows and concerned glances, her boss's hand on her shoulder telling her that she seems to be under a lot of strain. She doesn't sleep, her husband doesn't speak to her, his under eye circles matching hers. She jumps at every sound. She stands exactly one week later, staring at the thing in the mirror. It doesn't look at her husband, it doesn't need to. Aren't you tired? A voice in her head. She has never realized the weight of her own autonomy. Haven't you had enough? She watches her husband's fascination, his hand pressed against the glass. Fear is heavy, she thinks. It will not stop dragging me down. She doesn't blame him for his fixation. Her reflection is glorious, stomach-clenching in its beauty. She sees its perfection, and she's so tired. The glowing version of her raises its hand and hers raises in response, her teeth bearing as it smiles, the both of them reaching out. She is plunged into darkness, alone in the bathroom. The mirror in front of her is empty. Thank you. Corrine Heaver is a writer of speculative fiction, children's picture books, and poetry. She graduated from 
Simon Fraser University's The Writer's Studio in 2018 and has been published in Emerge 18, The Writer's Studio Anthology. She has read publicly at the inaugural reading series Spiel in August 2018. She is looking forward to completing her first magic realism novel, in which she works with the time-honored themes of love, loss, and transformation. What a great crowd. This is awesome. This is awesome. Um, just before I start, I want to tell you that one of the worst things that I can do is speak in public. It's really, really hard. <laughs> and the second worst thing I can do is to break out into song. So let's hope that that doesn't happen for, you, for your sake and mine, because it will be awful. So, all right. So, uh, <laughs> Yay! Okay, uh, this this is um, an excerpt, a few pieces from a larger piece that I'm working on that is not a spec fiction piece, but I'm hoping you'll enjoy it. So, it is called the Anti Apotheosis of Tom Waits, Part One. Undelivered fan letters to the maestro. Tom Waits, undelivered fan letter number one. Dear Tom. I waited in line for five hours. I didn't intend to, but it was an easy thing to do. There was a man in front of me. He had a cane and he was balding and he looked about 47, but I think he was only 24. <laughs> he was distraught at how long it was taking. Do you think it's worth it? He asked me and pushed his glasses back up his glistening, oily nose. At first I was enthusiastic. Oh, absolutely. It's Tom Waits at the Commodore Ballroom. <laughs> you can stand right at the stage and see him sweat, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, it's truly the best place to see him. I didn't mention I had never seen Tom Waits live before. <laughs> I was kind of scared. He turned away, satisfied for a few minutes, but then turned back and asked me again, do you think it's worth it? After a while, I stopped explaining why it was worth it and responded with three words. It's Tom Waits. It's Tom Waits. This went on for five hours. <laughs> the guy behind me was saying, if you have ever have one friend in your life that you can enjoy Tom Waits with, you're a lucky person. Usually, you're on your own. I had a friend that was waiting in line with me but he was long gone before I hit the hour mark. <laughs> Tom brings people together, but often you have to travel to him alone. <laughs> <laughs> His lyrics will haunt and leave you adrift with your own thoughts, hoping your pony knows the way back home. <laughs> Tom Waits, fan letter number five. Strip poker, <laughs> motel. <laughs> Never been no good at staying out of jail. I believe you. I was working on a movie in Manitoulin Island in Northern Ontario. We were all staying at the resort, and I use that term lightly. We were a little imprisoned on an island. There was a pub on the edge of the lake and people had taken to stapling their business cards up on the beams, in the, the wooden ceiling beams. Except one of the guys from Toronto, he refused to put up his card. It's like jail, he said. 
once you mark your name on a prison wall, you're the only one who can go back and remove it. <laughs> and I'm not coming back here <laughs> to take my any cards off any wall. And he raised his bottle to his lips and he held my gaze and he took a long draw of beer. Ain't enough raised right man. <laughs> Tom Waits fan letter, number seven. <laughs> Dear Tom, it was 1990, I was in university. James was hanging out with us in his wild and curly hair and his little glasses and he was cute and geeky. Tom Waits, no, never heard of him. I told him that night. He laughed and pulled out a cassette tape from his pocket. <laughs> he, re he rewound the tape to his favorite song and pressed play. <laughs> Frank settled down in the San Fernando Valley and his <laughs> wife was a spent piece of used jet trash who made good Bloody Marys and kept her mouth shut. She had a chihuahua named Carlos that had some kind of skin disease and was totally blind. <laughs> what was that? Down, 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 and the devil called him by name. Wow. <laughs> that afternoon, the world of a stormy sea opened up for me, and those lyrics painted the room with melancholy and set me sail on a journey. <laughs> if I was a tree, I'd be a cut down tree. <laughs> Tom Waits fan letter, number two. I recall it happened like this. The lights went down and then slowly opened off him where he magically appeared on stage at his piano. He looked out into the crowd until he found me. <laughs> and he came right over to me and he looked me in the eyes and he said, this won't hurt a bit. <laughs> and he reached down inside my throat and he took my breath away. <laughs> There was nothing left, <laughs> nothing in, nothing out, frozen, until he started to sing. Well, the time will come and we will shout. All stripped down, all stripped down, all stripped, all stripped. Thank you. James Callahan. The last time James gave a reading, it was when he placed in a contest run by the province newspaper. He was 11 at the time, reading for a room full of strangers. Someone started clapping before he finished during a dramatic pause. It was very awkward, but it's finally time to try again. James is procrastinating on completing his second novel and is otherwise continuing to misspend what remains of his youth doing what he loves. So this is an excerpt from uh, a novella, uh, and I'm just going to get right into it. Am I good? Yeah. <laughs> they called it washing out, but really people left the project because it burned out. 
cultivation of the weird and wild talents of whether projects reason for existing, whether useful or not, didn't come without cost. Some people could pay the price indefinitely, others, like Bird, came up short, to the tune of physical and often mental collapse. The months following his own washout would always be a blur to Ferd. The days and nights of fitful sleep, of hazy afternoons by a swimming pool rimmed with algae, book forgotten in his lap, while he reflexively tried to find something, anything. Futile those attempts, even possibly damaging, he'd been warned to not try to use his talent. However, it worked, something had broken. Perhaps in time, they told him, he'd regained some semblance of power, but it was important to recharge, to let it heal. For the longest time, Ferd couldn't. And they'd known that. They'd seen countless cases like his. It's why the halfway house was out in Orange County, in a dinky little town where there was nothing of note to find, not even roots. So Ferd drifted in a haze of exhaustion and pain, holding conversations he would never remember with people he didn't know and would never meet again. They gave him no drugs, but once Bird's recovery was sufficient to walk the streets, he found alcohol. Booze and mindless games of pool or darts, equally mindless drunken liaisons. They helped him forget that he was ever something special for a while. He put on weight, he used up his severance, worked a string of worthless jobs to pay the rent in a Santa Ana hovel. Fell in with unsavory sorts, got into trouble. Not much, it could have been so much worse. But that one, that one night in jail was rock bottom for Ferd. As soon as he had his car back, Ferd got the hell out of Orange County. <laughs> for a while, he wandered, entirely aimless without his internal compass. He worked his way down the coast, doing day labor and avoiding alcohol whenever possible. He made no friends, formed no attachments. The first sign he was growing roots, Ferd was dust on the wind. Then came Oceanside. It was a tourist town, the quintessential Southern California beach town. It had long piers and burger joints on the beach, drive-ins and palm-lined streets dusted with fine sand. It was a time capsule town, a bottled village, the kind of place where the kids always rode in packs on their bikes, carrying their surfboards through strings of endless afternoons, with the sun always halfway to the horizon, painting the world in honey, where the sight of modern cars was always jarring in a milieu that demanded the classic Ford Woodies and Buick Coupes and maybe the odd Mustang or Vet. Bird rolled in just before what passed for the summer rush, planning to stop just for lunch, maybe a walk to stretch his legs. He parked, tried to feed the meter, and discovered it needed actual coins rather than a thumbprint. He walked into the first shop he came to, a surf shop with red shingles on the roof and cheerful yellow stucco walls, asked for change for the meter. The girl at the register was shades of sunlight, her skin brown and hair bleached by UV and salt water, and her eyes barely glowed in green contrast. She gave him his coins with a blinding smile. Bird thanked her and nearly walked into the door on his way out. <laughs> it was how he saw the help wanted sign, so he turned back. Bird knew how to sell, but Felicia taught him how to surf, how to make a beach bonfire, taught him Beach Boys songs and how to snap open a beer bottle with a lighter. And within weeks, within hours it seemed in that timeless summer, she showed him how to make love on the beach. He moved in shortly after that, a tiny apartment, tiny apartment blocks away from work. The, the floors were blonde wood, the walls were white, and the bedroom had big windows that let in salty breezes that flavored the taste of her and cooled their sweat. Bird didn't know how long he stayed in Oceanside, 
It seemed a lot longer than three months, or even ten. The perfect summer seemed to last forever. Ferd forgot about his scars, forgot that finding things was ever significant. This time it was clean, scoured by sun, sex, and salt water, instead of drowned in self-pity and liquor and half-conscious fucks. Then came the first of September, coincidentally the first day in Ferd's memory that dawned cloudy. The breeze from the open window raked clammy claws across him, blew a note into his face. She told him with a note on his pillow. The husband he hadn't known she had returned from active service on furlough. The surf shop was dark. The locks no longer accepted his thumbprint. Even though he was the boy of summer, Don Henley wouldn't stop singing in his head as he drove out of Oceanside. He was halfway to Solana Beach when he realized how easy it had been, all of it, how he had found Oceanside, found work, found Felicia. He turned around and drove back to LA. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you so much to all of our brave readers for sharing. <laughs> Spiel wants you to be next on our stage. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Spiel underscore Vancouver for all details about upcoming events, featured themes, and how to submit your original work. I'm Joanna Baxter. And I'm Dana Mahana. Stay tuned for new episodes of Spiel, which will feature another selection of writers from our series of live recorded events. Thanks for listening. 